Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Rob Carolyn is our Bloomberg meteorologist and he's provided gentle perspective on a slow moving storm. Rob, let's start with that. What is the why of why Dorian is moving so slowly? Well, the why behind that, Tom, is uh, high pressure, which was up over the northeast this weekend, was what was steering Dorian into the northwestern Bahamas. That system's moved offshore. We've actually had a cold front move across the northeast, so there's nothing helping to push that storm along. What's going to happen is cold front in the western Great Lakes, it's a fairly strong one. It'll drop down, kind of start to draw Dorian north-northwesterly later today to the north tomorrow and then kick it out to the northeast as we head through Thursday and Friday. Is it a is is it a hurricane still and when does that shift with the erosion of the energy and the power the inertial force when does it shift to a tropical storm? Uh, when it gets into the North Atlantic, it is going to remain as a hurricane really? the entire wow. time. Wow. Um, yeah, it's uh, spun down out of 120 miles an hour sustained, but that's still a Category 3 hurricane, major hurricane. It's lashing uh, the northern side of Grand Bahama Island. It has been doing so since yesterday morning. Uh, the devastation there is going to be horrific. Uh, the good news is the track should keep the strongest winds just east of the Florida coast, the Georgia coast, and the South Carolina coast. I think uh, the, the best chance for a potential landfall in the continent of the United States would be around Cape Hatteras early in the morning on Friday. So this is something that people have been talking about, that Florida and South Carolina not totally out of the woods yet, because it would just take a little shift to send the eye uh, directly to make landfall. What are people looking for? When will we have a better sense of, of what could potentially get hit? Well, the good news is, Lisa, the fact that the storm isn't moving right now is what the models suggested would happen. So we're not seeing anything unexpected. Uh, what we're waiting for now is that uh, movement yeah. to the north-northwest today and the north later yeah. today. That'll start to give us some confidence that those stronger winds are going to remain offshore and not impact the Florida coast at all. You know, Rob, I got three networks right now here in our studios, folks. We're all wired up worldwide. All the t- Emma Chandra for Bloomberg Television right now in the green in Parliament. But in America, we got three guys wearing Patagonia standing on the shore uh, getting splashed. And, you know, we love Rob. You don't do that. Forget about the drama and all that. What have we learned about your business since Andrew of decades ago? Uh, the potential for these very small hurricanes to do horrific damage. Uh, Andrew was the same type of storm and same type of season. Uh, Andrew being the A storm was the end of August. We had had a very quiet summer that year and not a whole lot had gone on. Yeah. Uh, this being the D storm ends up being a 185 mile an hour hurricane with 220 mile an hour gusts. It only takes one storm to do horrific damage. And again, I can't imagine what it's going to look like on Grand Bahama Island tomorrow morning when they finally get a chance to get some TV crews in there. Just to push this forward, Rob. But what does it look like in terms of the rest of the hurricane season and the other storms that uh, meteorologists have been keeping their eye on? Well, it's going to get much more active than it's been, Lisa. Uh, we see conditions getting ripe in the Atlantic. In fact, we can see that this morning. There's the uh, potential system that may develop in the western Gulf of Mexico. Um, it may end up being a tropical storm. And then there's a wave off the coast of Africa yeah. around 31 west. That may become a depression within the next couple of days. So it's certainly going to be much more busy in the Atlantic over the next month yeah. than it's been the previous three months. Rob, you're a pro. Thanks so much. He is our Bloomberg meteorologist for all of our weather, storms, snow, and the rest of it.
this is a joy. And to start uh, this Tuesday, you know, it's like New Year's in the business world. Every, you know, it's like a happy Tuesday kind of time. And it is wonderful to start with Lori Calvacina of RBC on the equity markets. There was a lot of navel gazing this weekend, Lori, about what to do. All this other noise, bonds, currencies, sterling under 119, et cetera. Are you steadfast in an equity call or have you amended things? So I would say the only thing that's really changed in our view over the past, you know, say week, week and a half since we had that awful Friday where the trade war escalated yeah. again is, you know, I would say in the short term, at least we have more conviction that we're going to see a full on 10 percent pullback. And we've said that the risk of having that pullback morph into what we call a growth scare, we think the risks there have risen. It's not our base case. By growth scare, I mean something like took what took us to the lows of 2010, 2011 or 2016, where you saw basically like a 15 to 20 percent pullback in the market. That's not our base case, but we do think the risk has, has risen significantly. So, Lori, a 10 percent pullback, would that be across the board and just sort of talking about correlations, everything going down at once or are there going to be certain sectors hit harder? So, you know, what we always see on these really bad days, and you don't necessarily see it in the weekly data or the monthly data, but we do tend to see some of the names most heavily owned by hedge funds, particularly in the TIMT complex, the software space, IT services, things that might not necessarily be associated with the trade war directly, but that are simply widely held in big proxy for equity exposure among the hedge fund crowd. Those are things to watch out for. I mean, you know, we, we still like things like utilities, REITs, consumer staples. We're not necessarily necessarily saying that they will go up in a pullback. We think they go down less. Lori, we're jargon-free, particularly when is in the room. What is (laughs) TIMT? Tech, Internet, Media, and Telecom. So I'm a child of the tech bubble. I came into the business back in 2000, and that's how we used to talk about it then. Yeah. And and what we find is, you know, GIX has moved around the sectors yeah. a little bit over the last year. That's really how a lot of hedge funds and a lot of growth investors yeah. do their tech allocations. They lump media and telecom in. Yeah, we call that, those of us of a, of a later vintage, uh, Lisa, call that stocks with no profits. Continue. <laughs> stocks with no, well, some of them do. Uh, but it is interesting uh, to see what you were talking about, Lori, that the idea that hedge fund ownership is a recipe for volatility. And I'm wondering whether you're increasingly telling and advising clients to look at hedge fund ownership of stocks and then saying, stay away. It's, it's something that we've looked at for a long time. Um, we have one product that we put out. We put this out in August. And, you know, we do go through and we look at the names that are most heavily owned by hedge funds, both in terms of dollar value, in terms of market cap exposure, um, percent of market cap owned by hedge funds. What we've actually found is if you go back and you look at last year in the second half of 2018, uh, when you flipped over into the second half of the year, it was like flipping a switch. And the names most heavily owned by hedge funds, just the biggest market cap names, um, underperformed pretty uh, steadily until you got to basically kind of early December, and then they were kind of inline performers. But we saw those stocks start to break down before the market did. One thing that I'm wondering, and Lori, I know that you've been bearish for a while. The amount of bearish sentiment in the market is getting to be a sort of growing din. At what point is that a positive indicator for stocks? 
so, you know, it's interesting. We have a scorecard where we monitor different drivers for equities, and one of those drivers is uh, investor sentiment and positioning, and we consider it to be mixed. And the mixed is on the negative side, we still have positioning, which we think has been quite euphoric and in the process of unwinding. If you look at CFTC data, it's telling you that it's starting to catch up with where sentiment itself already is. Now, sentiment has been quite bearish, and on some metrics, if you look at AAII, the American Association of Individual Investors, Retail sentiment is quite bearish. That's usually a good buy signal. But the positioning, especially on the institutional side, which is what you're seeing with that CFTC data, it's been lagging a bit behind. It's catching up to where that bearish sentiment already is. Lori Calvacina, thank you. We will continue. We're thrilled that she could be with us for a substantial uh, time here this morning. Uh, She's with RBC Capital uh, Markets. Dan Ahn is joining us now. Dan Ahn, BNP Pariba, Chief U.S. Economist uh, and Head of Markets 360 North America, and former U.S. Department of State Chief Economist. And Dan, I want to start there with your experience in uh, the State Department, considering the fact that so many economists have basically written off the likelihood of a trade deal. I'm wondering, as we see the increasing expectations for a U.S. recession, how much would those get absolutely annihilated if there were some trade deal? In other words, you know, could the U.S. economy grow substantially if we remove some of these trade tensions? Hi, it's a pleasure to be on. And that's an excellent question. Um, I think actually uh, the uh, weakness that we're seeing in the U.S. economy and in fact around the world, um, it's not driven solely by trade tensions. Uh, this was a cycle that in manufacturing that began uh, before uh, the, the trade tensions really uh, uh, accelerated them. So even a removal of uh, the trade tensions uh, may not be enough to you know, cause the, uh, uh, the U.S. and the global economy to rebound that strongly. Um, but, that, but that said, uh, uh, there are, I think, tentative signs that perhaps uh, both sides are recognizing uh, the, the economic damage uh, that this is inflicting upon themselves as well as the rest of the world. Uh, and uh, um, uh, while it's really challenging to predict exactly the twists and turns of the trade tensions, um, I think the prospects for a ceasefire um, are still there. Okay, so Dan, I'm just wondering, given the fact that there are still uh, some chances for a ceasefire, what's the likelihood of a U.S. recession in the next 12 months? So, um, obviously, much will still depend upon uh, uh, how well the trade talks uh, go in September and beyond. Uh, um, But I think uh, it's premature uh, to talk about the R word uh, right now. It's, uh, uh, yes, you know, there are some important signals, notably the yield curve, which are pointing toward toward a recession. But, and clearly a deceleration and a slowdown in U.S. growth um, is Mm -hmm. already happening. Um, but uh, uh, the you know the U.S. consumer, uh, which comprises seventy percent of the economy, is still strong. Um, yeah. There's uh, only tentative signs that sentiment may be shifting. So I think we need to see uh, some more data um, uh, coming before we know uh-huh. for sure that the consumer is turning. And Dr. On your note is remarkably global as you pull it all back to the U.S. economy. I want you to fold in Japan right now. You've got a fabulous chart buried in your note of the slowdown uh, in their domestic machine orders versus what else is going on in Japan. Is Jerome Powell the central banker to Japan right now? 
yes, and unfortunately, he's in a position where with so much of the rest of the economy and particularly emerging markets, I would say, as well as other developed markets uh, hinged upon uh, uh, U.S. monetary policy, uh, he is de facto acting as the central bank of the world, even if uh, his mandate from Congress is, yeah. of course, just U.S. focused. And of course, uh, uh, there are people uh, in Washington, D.C. who want him to be uh, even more uh, uh, solely focused on the U.S. Uh, uh, rather than the rest of the So world. what does that do for September 18th? Lisa, what is it, the fourth already today? The uh, third? It's the third. Third. So we're like 15 days away from a Fed meeting. What is what is the the global nature of this mean for the chairman as he looks to September 18th? Yeah, so um, Chair Powell has definitely mentioned external conditions as one of the three reasons uh, why he has already started cutting rates. Um, he believes that this is part of a, a risk management strategy um, where the fundamentals themselves may not quite justify already moving into an easing cycle, um, but uh, there are reasons, including, as you said, uh, external uh, external global uh, economic weakness uh, that justifies rate cutting. So I think he, uh, he will use similar justifications um, uh, because the reasons, the three reasons are all still there. Uh, uh, weak economic conditions, uh, trade tensions, and uh, a muted inflationary outlook uh, uh, to uh, support further cuts. So you were saying that it's too early to start talking about the R word. And whenever anyone says the R word, it makes it sound that much more ominous. But we are seeing that yield curve, whether it's two tens, whether it's three month, 10 year, uh, wherever you want to slice and dice it, you're seeing the inversion persist. Is this time different? Does this sort of mean nothing? Yeah, it's always perilous uh, for economists to say this time is different when so many times it's not actually the case. But I actually do think that this time it's a little different. Uh, there are reasons to believe that structurally long-term interest rates um, have been depressed lower. I mean, in the end of the day, uh, yield curve inversion is basically a prediction that uh, short-term uh, uh, rates are going to continue to fall, um, uh, and that has always been correlated with a recession, um, but it the, you know, but the causal channels are complex, and with uh, yeah. rates already at a relatively low rate, it doesn't take, I think, as much this time around uh, for the yield curve to invert. You know, part of your charm is you took a finance degree with an economic degree as well. What is a causal transmission of negative interest rates? That wasn't in your studies, was it? No, and it's an ongoing uh, area for, for research right now. Um, uh, and uh, uh, the latest, I think, in academic thinking is that, yes, you know, we can move somewhat into negative territory. We've already seen that with, you know, with Switzerland, with some of the Scandinavian yeah. countries and so on. Uh, but there reaches a, a, a quick point, a point where uh, once you depress interest rates uh, uh, in negative territory too far, you know, other mitigating strategies like tiering, et cetera, can only do so much before this actually turns yeah, to be bad for the economy rather than good for the economy. And now's the point, folks, where we go academic. Marvin Goodfriend at Carnegie Mellon would suggest a braver uh, approach on negative interest rates, which deals with the amplitude of a difference equation. I mean, if you deal with the amplitude and push down negative rates, as we're seeing in Germany uh, right now in Switzerland, I mean, we had a record low 10-year yield two hours ago. Uh, folks, Dr. Ron, if we, if we boost the amplitude of negative interest rates, doesn't that provide instability by definition when you recover? 
Yeah, we're certainly uh, kind of on the other side of the looking glass here. Um, uh, none of the standard kind of theories uh, sort of accepts uh, that negative interest rates are even possible, and yet here we are. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, we are in uncharted territory, and that is always dangerous uh, for, for policymakers uh, and uh, and for academics. Uh, it may be kind of exciting for academics, uh, but uh, uh, it's, it's uncharted yeah. territory here. So, uh, um, I mean, bottom line, uh, you know, we can quibble about exactly what uh, is the, the right uh, kind of negative interest rate uh, that uh, should be set. But uh, I think the big picture here is that um, the headwinds faced by the global economy are not monetary and, and, uh, and credit uh, related in nature. And so there's only so much that you can do exactly. with a monetary tool to fix non-monetary problems. You sound like uh, Bill Dudley. No, I didn't mean that. Dr. Ron, thank you so much. Uh, greatly appreciate it with BNP Paribas. Joining us now, Lindsay Piegza. She is Stiefel Chief Economist. And Lindsay, I want to talk about manufacturing because we got a bunch of readings out from Europe and from Asia, and they painted the same picture. Factories are producing less, and it does not seem to be getting better anytime soon. Is this something specific to the industrial sector, or does this represent a broader, more sustained slowdown that will happen regardless of whether the trade tensions are resolved? You're right. We have been seeing this very steep downward trend in manufacturing, global manufacturing. Now, I, I do think that at the heart of this weakness is deteriorating trade relations, but we were beginning to see weakness bubble underneath the surface independent of these trade negotiations. So I do think that it's a, a dual pathway that's really compounding this negative implication. So in other words, you think that it's not just simply the new trade regime. And given that, do you think uh, that it signals some sort of global recession or a sort of deepening of the downturn? Or do you think that we're seeing things kind of peak out here uh, at the bottom? I don't think we can blame just trade uh, in terms of the, the weaker fundamentals that we're seeing. And this is something that the Federal Reserve pointed out as well, saying, yes, trade negotiations and these tensions have exacerbated this downward trend. But we were beginning to see the end of a credit cycle, the beginning of, again, the, these weakening factors already become evident, independent of these trade negotiations or deteriorating trade negotiations. That being said, when we look at the weakness abroad, when we see struggling growth, growth in uh, Europe's key economy, Germany, Italy, France, China, of course, slowing to the weakest pace of expansion in decades. And of course, the U.S. still positive, but seeing very clear signs of weakness and deteriorating composition of growth. I think this does spell yeah. maybe not a global recession, but certainly a non-accelerating economic period what's, for the global economy. What's the trend in inflation right now? What are the differentials between service sector inflation, call it 2.8%, and goods inflation barely above zero? Granted, recovery covering. But what are the dynamics of inflation you see, Lindsay? Well, that's one of the problems. And that's one of the issues that the Federal Reserve has struggled with, the fact that there's really two tails of inflation. When we look Thank at goods you. inflation, this is primarily reflecting the fact that this is a global economy. And when we <clears> see that goods are produced at a cheaper level overseas, we import that deflation here in the U.S. And that's restraining goods prices. But of course, services are harder to export overseas. And what we're seeing is more of an inflationary environment, okay, services, well which has been trending well above 2%. But 
of course, monetary policy can't be two different yeah. types of policy to, to combat those, yeah, I, uh, those different Lindsay, things. I cooked a barbecue this weekend, catered by Shake Shack. And in, 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 in doing it, you, you go real simply, is the inflation what our listeners feel translated service sector inflation, like books, Brandy Melville, and tuitions, or is the inflation a lower statistic? Which is it? Well, remember, as consumers, we feel the brunt of that, regardless of whether it's goods inflation, service inflation, we feel the composition of that because we're paying for those goods and services. But from a monetary policy standpoint, the Fed has to be very careful. and The Fed has to look at the differences that we're seeing. And we still are seeing very stable services costs well above, or I should say, well anchored above 2% versus goods costs, which again yeah. can reflect some of those international uh, pathways and and flows of capital and goods. So the Fed doesn't want to overreact to one category of declining prices. But I think more broadly, when we look at the PC, both the headline and the core, they're well below 2%, and the Fed was appropriate to act in July. Lindsay, I'm glad we brought up the consumer. How long can can the consumer stay strong with business confidence declining to the degree that it has been? Well, it's, it's shocking, really, that the consumer has been able to stay this strong for this long, not only with confidence peaking, but with really a, a lack of meaningful wage gains. We have seen wage gains pick up, to be, to be fair, uh, more recently, but we're talking about minimal tenths of a percentage point 10 years into the recovery. If we were honestly talking about such a pronounced improvement in the labor market with such a minimal amount of slack, we would easily have been talking about four, four and a half uh, percent wage gains on a sustained basis. So it's very surprising to me that the consumer yeah, but, has been this resilient without meaningful wage gains. Okay, okay, the wage gains aren't there, or is it they're all skewed to the upper X percent? I mean, is there a part of America getting a seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve percent wage gain, and there's another part of America flat on her back? Actually, you're exactly right. We're not seeing these wage gains expand across the entire economy. And in fact, I think the biggest divide, but I think the biggest divide is between the skills havers and those that don't have the the appropriate skills. And so when you're looking at manufacturing wages, mining, how about the service sector? You're struggling to keep up with inflation in terms of your wage gains. But if you're lucky enough to have a job in engineering, IT, computer science, you could actually be experiencing five, six, seven percent wage gains. So there's a very clear divide between the specific skills that employers want and those that uh, that employees have. Lindsay Piedzka, thanks so much. Lindsay Piedzka, Stiefel Chief Economist, uh, joining us to talk all things economics. It is the new year. I was I was pulling out remem- reminiscence of a stock operator, <laughs> like you read it every September. I know Christian Milani's read it like 14 times. He's with Invesco, and with a wonderful perspective on what to do and not to do in the market. Christian, if I take my Bloomberg terminal and I put my hand over the equity markets and look at everything else in the terminal, there's no way I would suggest this resiliency in equities. Let's start with the why of August and the why of the summer. Why have equities been so resilient? 
Well, so equities have been resilient because the overall uh, profitability of U.S. companies, despite what you may have heard from people, is actually quite good. And interest rates are uh, quite low as well. So that combination of good profitability and uh, other alternatives being not so, uh, not so hot, I think, keeps people focused on equities. So is clearly the, the issue for just financial markets in general, risk assets in particular, has been the uncertainty about trade. How are you kind of factoring that into your overall outlook for markets? Well, so uh, for the U.S. markets anyway, the trade remains the central issue. And uh, just to be clear, if things get far worse, uh, I, I think uh, the markets are going to suffer. Having said that, I think in the current context, when we are simply talking about tariffs, that is the Trump administration implementing certain tra tariffs on virtually all of Chinese exports, uh, we know what the implication of that is. That is effectively financial cons consolidation. That is a tax on U.S. consumers, and we know what the impact of that is going to be. You know, it's not good, but it is yeah. not going to be catastrophic. Uh, uh, the, you know, there's enough momentum in the economy from jobs and income yeah. growth for, uh, for people to live through that. If somebody's equity international domestic because somebody told them to do that, at the margin now, are you stable or increasing international ownership? Or are you migrating at the margin over to U.S. domestic ownership? So U.S. valuations relative to international valuations are substantially worse in that yeah. uh, U.S. equities are meaningfully more expensive. So I think uh, at, at the margin, uh, uh, despite the fact that it may take a while for all of this to play out, uh, the incremental allocation from my perspective is really going into emerging markets uh, because valuations in emerging markets are extraordinarily attractive and the trend for inflation and rates in emerging markets is lower. So, Krishna, as we think about, you know, the, the, the trade uncertainty in the marketplace, it kind of puts the Fed in even a more difficult position here to may perhaps think it might have to kind of be a bulwark a little bit against what some of the negative effects of uncertain trade. What do you expect the Fed to do over, let's call it the next several quarters, and, and do you think it will be enough? Well, so I, I think uh, Chair Powell actually indicated in his Jackson Hole speech as to what he is going to uh, going to be doing. You know, despite his characterization of a mid-cycle uh, recalibration after the July meeting, it become it, it has it has become quite clear to me that if the markets uh, or if the economy, not the markets, if the economy needs it, I think they will be providing more support, and I think the economy could certainly be, uh, use that support uh, for it to carry through whatever uncertainty the Trump administration has created. So uh, my expectation is they are probably going to cut in, in September and they probably cut in October and, and perhaps one more time in December. Again, uh, yeah. there's enough momentum, but I think providing that support in an environment where there's no inflation is probably the right thing to do. What is the catalyst for international improvement relative to Standard & Poor's 500? Is it financial earnings-based revenue growth catalyst, or is it all political? 
I think it is, at the moment, it is all political. It is trade wars. It's uh, Brexit. It's all these things that are dominating uh, the conversation. I think there's the profitability of international companies, and especially in emerging markets, is, is good enough. It's just that in the current context, nobody wants to buy any of these because uh, tomorrow they could be somewhat cheaper. On the other hand, if you have a 5-10 year investment horizon, uh, this may be the opportunity that you had been waiting for for quite some time. So, Christian, one of the things that's certainly been supporting uh, economies around the world, uh, but certainly the U.S., has been the consumer. We're going to get some more jobs data at the end of this week. What is your sense of uh, the consumer's, you know, really overall underlying strength? So if you if you look at kind of real-time data for month of August, and we are talking about uh, August jobs data coming in September, uh, the, the activity level actually has been relatively stable. And you can kind of piece all of that together looking at all the other uh, indicators. So from, from that standpoint, the near-term outlook for jobs and income growth is quite good. Uh, you know, the, the, if the current uncertainty persists, the challenge is really going to be more in, in uh, maybe by November December of this year or more likely in 2020. So right now there's enough momentum in the economy. Jobs growth would be good. Income growth is going to be good. And therefore, consumption is going to be supported. Krishna, on the banks, please help us. On domestic banks and international large cap banks, where's the best opportunity now? Well, so, you know, the domestic banks in, in, in general, actually banks in general, in my mind, have been the ultimate value trap. That is, you know, if, if they have a great deal of profitability, but the, their current business model in the environment today of rates and all the disruption that is taking place is just not conducive enough to meaningful growth in that profitability. And that is going to be a challenge for the sector for the foreseeable future. Having said that, they're really good value. And if you want to kind of uh, take, a, uh, uh, take a value approach to things, uh, mm -hmm. banks represent, especially U.S. banks, represent yeah. quite good value, but they're not going up anytime yeah. soon. You're, you're there for dividends more than anything else. Christian, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.